0: The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Psalm chapter 51. We'll just begin by reading the passage this morning. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For now my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, where I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering, the sacrifices of God, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do thank you so much for the opportunity to meet together today. We thank you for this psalm. Lord, I thank you personally for what it's meant to me at times in my life. Lord, where sin has just crept in and seems to have taken control, discouraged me. God, it's something I've been able to turn to and pray, even word for word at times, Lord, and find peace in your mercy. I pray that you'd help us to find that this morning, that you'd make our sin real to us. Lord, that your mercy would overcome that. I pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. This is actually one of my favorite psalms. Um, like I said, I, I've turned to this psalm probably more so than any other psalm. Um, times of indwelling sin where, where there's just moments in my life or periods in my life where Honestly, where I would have even questioned my salvation, the psalm has just been a comfort to lean on. It's something that I've turned to and prayed before. It's something I've written on. It's something I've thought about. Um, It's probably something I turn to on a regular basis, uh, even still. It's one of the only psalms where we can can take what is written and really write in the text that says to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And we can draw it right back to another story in the Bible. And so we're going to do that this morning. I'm not going to read the entire thing by any means because of time, but you can turn to First or Second Samuel chapter 11 if you'd like, and kind of just follow along. But I want to get into the story a little bit about what's causing David to write this psalm. It's probably one that a lot of us are familiar with, and I'm sure it's one that some of us aren't familiar with. Second Samuel chapter 11 describes this time as a time when kings would go out to battle, and David stays behind in the kingdom in Jerusalem and he's walking around on his roof, and he's looking out over his city, and he sees a woman bathing on the roof. It was customary in that day for that to happen. Probably not a place David should have been, I assume. It was probably just knowledge that David shouldn't have been up there. But he was, and he was looking around, and he sees this woman, and he inquires about the woman, and one of his men says, oh, that's Bathsheba. Um, We know who she is. It's Uriah's wife. And David basically demands that they bring Bathsheba to him, And then they have an affair. David sends her home. Bathsheba writes back not too much longer, um, long after that and says, I'm I'm pregnant. I have a child now. So David sets this plan into motion to basically try to erase the fact that he's committed this really um, private sin. And his plan is that he is going to say to the commander on the battlefield that he needs to take... Uriah the Hittite, put him into the worst position on the field, put him right at the thick of the fighting. And then when the battle is at its worst moment, when it's at its hottest, when it is the most dangerous, draw everybody else back and just leave Uriah there stranded. So David's captains do this. And as a result, um, probably not something David had considered, many of his good friends die. If you, if you read in chapter 11 towards verse, uh, somewhere between verse 14 and 21, you'll see that it refers to a group of men as David's servants. I mean, it's, it's the Israeli army, it's, it's all David's servants, but it's calling out a specific group of people as David's servants. And, and these men would have been referred to in other parts of Scripture as David's mighty men. Uh, his, his, his posse, his homeboys, it's his group that he's trained with and learned with and fought with. They've been with him for years. These guys were with him when Saul was chasing David well before he was king. And as a result of David's sin, as a result of David's evil plan, many of these people die. So several of your servants, Uriah being one of them. The fact that David, it just stood out to me, the fact that David knew Uriah personally and, and did this just kind of adds that much more realism to this. So word goes to David and he says, in case David asks why why on earth would we have gone so close to the wall, just remind him that Uriah died to ease his anger. It kind of gives you a little bit of insight to the, to the spiritual status of where David, the emotional status that David's in right now. It would please him The death of these other men would please him to know that Uriah ultimately died to cover up his sin. So chapter 12 rolls around, and God sends his prophet, David, to talk to... No, sorry, prophet Nathan to talk to David. Nathan approaches David with a story about a poor um, sheepherder who has, I believe, one lamb... And a rich man comes into town who has many and decides to take the one lamb from this poor man. And Nathan, for all intents and purposes, says to David, what would you do in this situation where this man stole this lamb and slaughtered it? And David says, this guy has to die. This guy has to die. And, And this man who was Had this lamb taken from him, must be restored fourfold. And Nathan looks him in the eye and says, You are the man. You are the man. He kind of pulls a gotcha on him. So, this is not prescriptive for how we approach people about sin in the church. We shouldn't be coming at you with gotcha moments of, like, Hey, you know, there's a story of this guy who, you know, slipped some money out of the offering plate. What do you think we should do? It was you! You know, it's just not something we're supposed to be doing. Keep in mind, this is not in a church context. This is a, a prophet of God. Old Testament prophecy being vastly different than New Testament prophecy. Please keep your words of judgment for the people of God in this church to yourself. We don't want them. Um, probably won't believe them. We reserve that for words of encouragement, edification. But David pulls this go- or Nathan pulls this gotcha moment. I'm almost done talking about Nathan. I can stop mixing their names up. Nathan pulls this gotcha moment on David. <laughs> and David is... hit. With the realization of what he has done. And in this really kind of, speaking as a human, despicable moment, David confesses to Nathan his sin, and God says, or God says through Nathan, that your sin is being essentially, the word would be passed over. That God is forgiving his sin. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. And he follows it up with, nevertheless, you're, you're, the child's going to die. There's going to be consequences. There's going to be results to your actions. But it's, it's almost heinous as a human to think about the fact that Bathsheba was hurt. Uriah was murdered. Uriah's family was hurt. David's friends were killed. David's friends' families are missing their fathers, their brothers, their sons. And God just passes over his sin. In Psalm 51, we see a sinner brought to the end of himself by the sins that he has committed, turning to a God, and it can only be a God who would do that, who loves to give mercy and grace to his children. David is expressing his feelings in language and on levels that gives us insight to his view of his own sin, only speaking more assuredly of the mercy of God than he is of his own sinful state. Calvin puts it this way, David, having his eyes directed to the heinousness of his guilt, encourages himself to hope for pardon by considering the infinite mercy of God. It is incredible to think that a man who did such heinous things found it necessary to put his confession into song. This wasn't a private letter. This wasn't a poem David wrote to go back to in his diary. He wrote this to sing in the temple. (laughs) He gave this as a gift to the children of Israel This was a song that they would have sung in their worship services. This is merely evidence that David's song is not so much about his guilt as it is about God's mercy. I think guilt is something we all struggle with. It's something we all deal with. Uh, And it's confusing about how we as Christians should approach it, especially in today's day and age when there's so much teaching coming from all different directions. Uh, I hear a lot of... Teaching that would seem that we're supposed to ignore our guilt and just accept who we are in Christ, which is, we are true, we are supposed to be standing on who we are in Christ, absolutely. But this passage does not paint guilt as something to be avoided. It does not exclude brokenness and guilt from the Christian life. That's not the hallmarks of a Christian. That you don't get discouraged, that you don't feel rotten over your sin, that you never feel shame. Rather, the hallmarks of a Christian life become visible when these things enter into your life in how you deal with them, in how you exemplify a connection to Jesus, in how you think and act and deal with discouragement and guilt through these times. Salvation is not a promise of no sin, no bad feelings, no consequences or repercussions, but rather a promise that forgiveness, help, intercession, and ultimately victory in facing these things is sure. In this song, we see the grace of God at work in the life of a believer, and the effect is that he can be crushed well. He can navigate his guilt well. Because he knows very well the source of his salvation. So let's just go through this passage. I'm going to go through pretty quickly because there's a lot to cover. There's really four things that we see here about how we can approach God in our guilt. How we can approach him in confession of guilt. How we can seek healing of our guilt from him. The first one is to own up to your sin. Verses one through six: Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in the truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David is acknowledging his sin. He recognizes his need for mercy because he recognizes that he is a great sinner. Alex was out shopping with my sister-in-law not too long ago. And um, promises were made to my niece, my six-year-old niece, about um, if certain behaviors were accomplished, certain rewards would be purchased at said store. Um, Those behaviors were not met. Um, They were very much not exceeded. And nothing was purchased. And they get back to the car, and they're driving home, and my niece, Nora, is distraught. She is beside herself because she didn't get whatever it was my sister-in-law was going to purchase for. And she starts to talk about reasoning through her guilt with her mom about how she is this great sinner, literal words, I'm just a sinner, I can't do any good, we need God to do good, I just can't do good without God, better Calvinist than I'll ever be, my six-year-old niece. But just recognizing her depravity. And I think we've all had those moments. It's utterly embarrassing when they're public, when you have to admit to somebody that, I didn't really think I was this way, but I'm actually a terrible person, and you've kind of received the brunt of that. And David's doing this here. He's owning up to this sin. And he does this first by recognizing and turning to the fact that he needs mercy. David, in broken desperation, turns to the mercy and love of God. He's a man that understands the depths of his sin. And has turned to the mercy and the love of God, according to your love and kindness, according to your steadfast mercy, God. My sin is so great; I need to call out to the very extreme of your kindest attributes. I need the full brunt of your goodness and mercy. He's understanding his sin. He also recognizes that his sin goes very deep. Wash me thoroughly. In older versions, that would have been translated, multiply to wash me. Literally, wash me several times. This is not to accuse God of having some sort of difficulty with cleaning us. It's not a problem for God to forgive our sin, to wash us. He doesn't have difficulty in doing those things. This isn't about the exertion or the effort that God is going to have to go through. But rather, that the stain on his conscience is deep. David's sin... Has crushed him. It has left a mark that he can't shake. It's something that dirties us as believers. Not in any internal sense, but in temporal sense, we are removed from our affections for God and his goodness, by our sin. Verse three, he lets us know he has thought and continues to think on his actions. These are all ways that he's recognizing and owning up to the fact that he's a sinner. He says he's continually thought about his action. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. It's continually on his mind. He gives us his word for, it's the cause by which he seeks God's mercies. Because these things are on my mind, because they're weighing heavy on me, I'm seeking you out. I do want to say here that God is gracious to not make us get to the point where we feel utterly terrible about our sin before he forgives us. I think we've all experienced that as a reality in our lives. Oftentimes, he brings brokenness to us. He brings guilt to us through other means. He doesn't wait for us to get there. That's the gospel. He breaks down our own strongholds. David is simply showing us that he does and has allowed his guilt by the grace of God to have an effect on his heart and mind. David also recognizes that his sin is ultimately against God. This is not to say this is not to say that his sin did not affect bathsheba in any real way um it's it's not and it, it's not to say that it didn't affect uriah or uriah's family or the baby but rather to show that when we sin against others when we sin against god's image bearers we are ultimately sinning against god himself look at verse the second part, that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. To me, this is a very confusing phrase. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. We do see this quoted elsewhere. Romans chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. If you want to turn there very quickly, we won't stay there very long. Romans chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the goodness of God? Or sorry, does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. God, when you are judged for how you judge, when you are judged by your words, you will be just and you will prevail. This is the sense. It's a quote directly from Psalm 51. He continues this thought in, in verse 21 of Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in, Christ, in Jesus Christ for all who believe, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has, and these words again, it's a repetition from what was going on in 2 Samuel chapter 12. He has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How can God... Forgive wicked sin and still be just because he provides the payment for that sin himself through his son. Lastly, he recognizes that his sin nature is in direct contrast to his spiritual. Look at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David is recognizing his depravity, his sinful nature in direct contrast to what God desires for his being. God, I am this. You desire this. I am evil from birth. Sin is a part of my nature all the way back to Adam. It's something I continually do but you delight in giving truth in my inward being. You delight in burying your word into my heart. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. You let me see that sin, you let me feel that guilt as a connection to who you are. As David, we can continue to delight in God's cleansing mercy by owning up to our sin. Also, number two, we can believe that God, believe that Christ owns our sin. David's gonna make a few references in this passage or has made a few references in this passage that draw back to ceremonial law. This is the first one. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Purge me with hyssop. Hyssop would have been a a branch. Um, It had a certain smell to it. They would have used it. um, If there was mold in your house, it it was against... Levitical law to have mold in your house. You would clear out the house. They would cleanse the house. The priest would literally come to your house because it was moldy um, and then like signify that it was clean by wiping stuff on the doorpost with hyssop. Same thing when a leper was cleansed. They did this ceremony involving birds' blood and hyssop and a bunch of different things, like a red strand, and they would shake that over the leper who had just been cleansed to show that he was clean. It was also what was used in Egypt during the first Passover to paint the blood on the doorposts. Again, this idea of passing over. God told David that I've passed over your sin, your repentance. I've passed over your sin. I've forgiven this. And he's doing this for us. Christ has conquered our sin. He's victorious over it. He owns it. He has taken it. He has purchased it. David is saying here, Christ, you are my great high priest, and you can declare me clean, guiltless, Free from the penalty and power of sin. In verse 8, David moves to address the sorrow that he's feeling. He moves to address the sorrow he's feeling. He's focused so far in the, in the first half of this passage on, on the sin that he's committed. And late in the psalm, he turns to his sorrow. This is where I wanted him to get when I was reading the passage, because it's just crushing reading these first several verses. He's allowed sorrow to do, it, do its work, That is, he starts with his sin and moves to his sorrow, there's a mark of true repentance on David. David now wants to move past the brokenness and once again be satisfied with the goodness and grace of Christ. I want to point out really quickly the words that David's using. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. There's something external here. This isn't just that David desires to be joyful and glad himself. He desires to be so removed from his guilt, to be so removed from his brokenness, that he can recognize the mercy and joy of God in those around him. I want to hear joy and gladness. He wants his community restored. He has done what seems like irreparable damage to the nation of Israel. They lost a battle because of him. Families were completely destroyed because of him. And he wants to hear their joy and gladness as well. Repentance from sin is not only going to seek our own internal fix in repair. It is going to seek the repair of the damage that we've done, the wake that we've left behind us. David is making this a community thing. God, this isn't just about me. It's one of the ways we know David's not just trying to earn forgiveness here. He desires to hear that his sin's damage has been repaired in those around him. Do we look for joy and gladness of our Savior in in those around us as part of our Christian experience? It would seem the ability to find something in others to be joyful and glad about is part of what it means to be a Christian in tune with the mercy of God. We should be able to look at those around us who are hurting, who are broken, who have been hurt behind by us and find something to point to the joy and gladness of God. For they are goodness and ours. Verse 9 strikes me just as a plea for Christ's work on the cross. Out and out, it's the gospel. Hide your face from my sins and blot up my iniquities. What else could cause a holy God to not see our sin and to effectively erase it from our record than it being bought and owned and put to death by his own Holy Son. This is a plea for the gospel, which leads to our next point in our confession that we can delight in God's cleansing mercy by joining the Holy Spirit's inner renewal. When we're purchased by Christ, we are made his own. The Holy Spirit comes in and joins us in restoring us and renewing us. David says, created me a clean heart. O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Don't fix the old nature. Build a new one. Don't, don't, Don't go back to what I've completely destroyed. Give me something new. Give me a new spirit bent on delighting in you. Spurgeon says that salvation is a display of supreme power, The work in us, as much as the work for us, is holy of omnipotence. That means the work done for us on the cross and the work done in us in restoration, in repentance. They're both of the same power. They're both the works of an all-powerful God in our hearts. He continues to say the affections must be rectified first. Our desires must be changed. Our desires must be made new or all our nature will go amiss. That's what David's saying here. The work in us now requires the same power that Christ's work on the cross did. The work the Spirit is doing in us requires the same power, the work that Christ did for us requires. Renew a right spirit, he says. God, as your child, it was there. Please put it back. Take what was evil and replace it with what was good. He continues to say, this lamenting, he's just recalling his sin and and what effect it might have that he has not yet experienced. He's he's anticipating it. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. This is going to be a little bit of a hard connection if you're not familiar with King Saul, um, the king that preceded David. These are both things that happened to King Saul. He was cast out of God's presence. And the Old Testament literally says that God's spirit was removed from Saul. And David is saying, if that sin could cause that, my sin certainly could. Please don't allow that to happen. Please don't allow that to happen. When Saul refused to do what God had asked him to do for the good of God's people, it became a sin that put Saul into a state of separation from God. And David is pleading to not let that happen. John 6 brings us a promise about that. All that the Father gives me will come to me and I will not cast them out. David, as God's child, has nothing to fear in this regard. But he is making sure that, he under- that God knows and God understands and that we know and that we understand that we have to check ourselves. He is seeking to stay near to God and he knows that it is here he will find refuge from the darkest desires of his heart and fulfillment of true joy verse 12, he says, make me happy in you. Restore to me the joy of that salvation. God, I've lost it. I need it back. I want it back. You've done a work in breaking these bones and bringing me back to you. I I want my joy back. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Jesus desires joyful worship from joyful people who find their joy in him. He desires joyful worship from joyful people who find their ultimate source of joy in him. Restore this joy to me. Keep me in this joy with a spirit that is willing to delight in you. Make me as willing to fellowship with you, God, as you are to fellowship with me. He's delighting in the cleansing mercy of God. Return that. And lastly, and quickly... He invites us to invite others. Our last response to God can be to invite others into cleansing mercy. As a result of going through what we go through when we sin, and the brokenness that that brings, and the pain that that brings us, and the pain that it brings others, we can then turn in repentance to God and use those times and use those experiences to call others into the same mercy. There's no better instructor than those who have been experientially taught by God himself. Thankfully, we're in a room where we're surrounded by experts in sin. (laughs) At least there's one up here. If we can turn to each other and use our times of failure and our times of brokenness in an honest way to call people out of theirs, that's an effective method. That is an appropriate response to God's mercy. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. It's effective. Use your history of of brokenness to touch the broken around you. No temptation has ever taken you that is not common to man. Someone else will be helped by what you have to share. It is selfish to keep it to yourself. You went through that for a reason. verses 14 through 15, David turns back to his guilt again. He says, God, deliver me from blood guiltiness. O God, my God, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. He uses this word here that would literally translate to bloods. And when it's used, it can refer to kind of any capital crime. Uh, It's used in Genesis 4 with uh, Cain and Abel. Your bloods, or the bloods of your brother have cried out to me from the grounds. Your guilt has cried out to me. It's a crime that's punishable by death. David was extremely aware of the gravity of the situation he had created, and he was turning to God as the foundation of his hope. The righteousness of God as an attribute here, because he does call out to God's righteousness, is not to be understood as the strictness to which God exacts vengeance. David is calling on it rather as his faithfulness in fulfilling the promises and extending help to all who seek him. We see this reliance carry over to the next phrase, Lord, open my lips so my mouth can praise you. This is not a fake type of worship that David's talking about. He's not hiding his sinfulness from his church by putting on a holy face. This, is, this isn't someone who committed these sins yesterday, rushed to church today to get up on stage, clap, dance, that everyone thinks that they're all right. This is a man who knows in order to bring real praise and worship, our gracious and good God is going to have to give him a heart of praise again. He's relying on God to bring to pass, as God so often does, the thing which God himself asks of us. And I don't say that to be legalistic. There's nothing wrong with um, realizing that your sins on Saturday were there and then coming to church to worship on Sunday. I'm not distracting us or pulling us away from that. But to show that David has a reason for being so keen on spirit-filled worship. He's insistent on it here. Verses 16 through 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it, you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. There's something about what he's experienced in the past. He doesn't want to just repeat it to repeat it. seems that God is not interested in our processes or our status quo. He doesn't care for our keeping of appearances or our putting on a brave or happy face. God desires us to be real and open about our brokenness, to be open about how the gospel has touched us and met us where we are. These are the sacrifices God loves. We are not to sacrifice our sanctification and growth to the altar of everyone thinking that we're okay. That's not community, and it's certainly not worship. God delights in our brokenness. He loves and cares tenderly for the brokenhearted. That's the gospel. The ceremony and pomp and circumstance does nothing but a heart that is in tune with what Christ has done for it. That's worship. And it's mission It's the way we call people back into mercy, by being open and real about what God has done in our lives. Not by putting up a front and pretending that Monday through Saturday were perfect for us. I know I'm dragging this out, but it's something that I struggle with, so I'm preaching to myself right now, so bear with me. David turns from prayer for himself to prayer for the church body as a whole in verse 18 through 19. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices. In burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. There's a contrast between what he just said and this. God, your ceremonial things that we've been doing, they're, they're nothing without a right spirit. They don't accomplish anything. And God, you'll do them again. doesn't really make sense to me. build the walls of Jerusalem. At this point, Jerusalem's already built. The only thing missing from Jerusalem is the temple. The temple that where, where God would dwell with his people has yet to be built, and it was to be built by David's son. What David is saying in this kind of confusing way is in spite of the destruction that my sin has done, Continue to do good to your people, God. Keep the promises that you have made through my line. He'd promised to build the temple through David's son, Solomon. But even greater than that, this wasn't a temporary dwelling place being promised. The temple was a foreshadow of things to come. Through David's line, God would come to dwell with man in the person of Jesus Christ. And I believe that's what's being referenced here. God, you desire broken and contrite hearts as worship in your people, and you will build them up through what you're going to do in Christ. This is the prayer of David here. Build your church. And when you do all the things you ask them to do, to gather, to worship, to attend to the word, to take communion, to baptize, these things will then be a pleasing sacrifice because they'll be based on the sacrifice of your son for broken people who delight in God's cleansing mercy. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do thank you so much for your goodness to us in this psalm. Lord, I know it's a lot to take in, God, I pray that you would help us to own up to our sin. You'd help us to own up to the things that we do that go against you, God. But you would not allow us to be swallowed by our guilt, Lord, but be consumed by your mercy and what your mercy has caused and affected in our hearts. We thank you that you've called us to yourself and that you will keep us the same way. We thank you that the things that happen to us are not meaningless, but they're utterly meaningful, that everything that it causes, Lord, whether it's by our own hands or by the hands of those around us, Lord, has meaning in your sovereign will. We pray that you'd help us to face the things that we have done, Lord, and to use them to effectively call people into fellowship with you, that we wouldn't pretend to be something that we're not, Lord, but we would be recognized as people who have experienced the mercy and love and grace of God because we desperately needed it. We pray all these things, Lord, as we continue in worship, keep these things in our hearts and mind, in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.